You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. This week on Yap, we're chatting with Donald Miller. Donald Miller is a New York Times bestselling author, public speaker, podcast host, and business owner who is widely considered as one of the most entertaining and informative speakers in the world. We had Donald on our show fairly recently in episode number 120, where we talked about storytelling for business and how to leverage storytelling in your marketing to drive sales. If you're interested in that topic, be sure to go back to episode number 120 to check it out. Donald is also the CEO of StoryBrand, a top marketing company that has helped more than 3,000 businesses clarify their brand message. Donald's company, StoryBrand, has deeply influenced the marketing strategy for brands like Pantene, Ford, Chick-fil-A, Intel, and thousands more. He's also the host of the extremely popular Business Made Simple podcast, which I've appeared on twice, and he's the author of the best-selling books, Building a Story Brand and Marketing Made Simple. And his latest book, Hero on a Mission just came out and is the focus of today's episode. In this episode, we get a refresher on Donald's four characters in every story, the victim, the hero, the villain, and the guide. And we'll hear how Donald acted like a victim throughout his 20s and how that mentality totally worked against him. And we'll gain an understanding on the steps he took to turn things around and to transform into the hero of his own life. We'll get a peek into some of Donald's tools for his long-term success, like the elements of his morning ritual, which includes reading his eulogy to remind himself every day of his top priorities. And lastly, we'll learn how we can each reframe our own story and structure our lives in such a way that we experience a deep and fulfilling sense of meaning. If you want to learn more about personal transformation and how to go from a victim to a hero, this episode is for you. Hey, Donald, welcome back to Young and Profiting Podcast. It's good to see you, Hala. I'm so happy that you're here. You're one of my favorite people in this space. So for those of you who don't know Donald, Donald is an amazing entrepreneur. He's also the CEO of a company called Story Brand, which has helped thousands of companies, household names like Pantene and Chick-fil-A create their brand narrative. And Donald is a master at that. Donald's actually here today because he's launching a new book. It already launched. It's called Hero on a Mission. And so that's out now. And today we're going to talk to him about his book and his transformation personally. Uh, so Donald, you're super successful now. You're very well put together. You're a great businessman. 
you come highly recommended. But it turns out when I was reading your book that you weren't always like this. And in your mid-20s, you had a victim mindset and you couldn't make any money and you didn't have great relationships and you were basically like a failure at life. So talk to us about what you were like in your mid-20s and how you were a victim and then we'll go from there. Well, I will say I when I look back at the kid in their mid-20s, I'm 50 now, I still really liked that kid. He was fun. You know, he liked to write. He believed in himself as a writer. He had great friends. He went on some great adventures. But yeah, I think underlying all of that was this sort of idea of of I'm doomed. It's never going to happen for me. I'm never going to get my break. You know, the world is against me. And, you know, my life showed. It showed that. it. You know, I was probably 150 pounds heavier than I am now. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, no, I was 387 at my highest. I'm 210 or 208 the other day. I was kind of proud. I'm down two pounds. So I'm, I was fat then. I'm just chubby now. So so things are getting way better, right, Hala? You know, but I kind of had this default mode of seeing myself as a victim, and I didn't realize that I was choosing that identity. And I I discovered it in the very strange way. In order to write, in order to be a writer, I'd studied story because, you know, you study story to try to get people to turn the page and you use these techniques. And and I noticed there are four characters in almost every story, the victim, the villain, the hero, and the guide. And as I looked at my life like a story, I realized, oh, my word, if your life is a story, you're the victim. Somebody else is the hero. And you're this bit part that lays around feeling sorry for itself. And somebody else gets the girl and gets the money and gets the job and gets the, gets the accolades. And you just suck energy into yourself. And quite frankly, it's not very attractive. And when I realized that, I stopped doing it. I didn't have to fight it. I just stopped doing it because I realized, wait a second, you're thinking of yourself as the victim because you want to make excuses for not trying. You'll make excuses for not succeeding. You want a rescuer. You want somebody to come and do the work for you because you you don't know how to do it. And none of it is working. And so when I began, you know, it's a percentage game. When I began, you know, if I was seeing myself 80% of the time as a victim, I began to see myself 32% of the time as a victim and 60% of the time as a hero. Everything began to change. I mean, everything. And, um, you know, lost weight, got a book published, started a little company, started to learn more and sort of acquire knowledge about how to get better. And, you know, it didn't change overnight. But now, 25 years later, my life is not perfect. There's there's hard things that happen to us all. But I enjoy my life. And I and more than I enjoy my life, what I'm really saying is I enjoy the story that I'm living inside of. And it's transforming me and continuing to make me stronger. And so, I, you know, I wonder now that I've written this book and there's been so much feedback about it, I'm realizing, oh, my word, this isn't just me. There's a lot of people who don't realize, wait a second, I've been identifying as the wrong character in the story and it's not working. And if I just identify as this character, things start to change. And, of course, the four characters that exist in story, the victim, the villain, the hero and the guide exist in story because they exist in us. All four of them exist in you, and I and I personally play all four every day. But to the degree that I give the victim stage time, my life goes nowhere. To the degree that I give the villain stage time, 
people don't like me and they want to throw me in jail and they want to, they want justice against me. And, and to the degree I give the hero stage time, I transform into a better version of myself. And so the idea is just try to give the hero more time in your life and your life will shape up accordingly without you having to do much of anything. Oh my gosh, this is so powerful. And I can't wait to really dive deep on each one of those different characters and just go into all of that. But before we do that, I want to know the genesis of this book. Why did you decide that you wanted to write this book at this point in your life? Because you've been writing for years. How come, why did you decide to put this out now? What was the big change or aha moment where you were like, I really need to write this book about transforming from victim to hero? Well, I, I didn't. I decided I wanted to write this book 10 years ago, and I couldn't. I mean, I, I tried and tried and tried, and I just couldn't get it to where it was simple and easy to follow and easy to understand. I could live it, but I couldn't explain it to anybody else what it was. It, it was a combination of a little bit of Joseph Campbell's work, uh, a little bit of Viktor Frankl's work, and then sort of a memoir story of how I was applying these things. So, you know, I tried in, in various forms, and it just wasn't very, wasn't readable. It wasn't enjoyable to read. Finished a book and sat down and said, I think I can do this and started. And I think, Holly, you know this, when you actually sit down, you write those first few paragraphs, you get the first few pages out, you you pretty much know this one's going to go all the way. This one's going to go all the way to the end zone. And I have felt that. And over the year, you know, would get up early from about 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. and work on this and try to explain it. A few fits and false starts, a lot of stuff in the trash can, but ultimately, you know, was able to finish the book. And I, I think most of it I was able to finish because I just kept telling myself, look, keep it simple, keep it simple, keep it simple, keep it simple. Don't get into the weeds. And it became a book. And and I'm really, really grateful. It also, something also happened while I was writing the book that I think pushed me through. And my wife got pregnant and I finished the book and we had our daughter, Emmeline, and then I started rewriting it. And so the whole time I'm writing it, I'm thinking, I'm going to be a dad. What, what do I want to leave for my kids? Like, what if, what if I die and she never meets me? And that sort of became a motivation to get it all down. And then after she was born, of course, I fell completely in love with this little child and started thinking about my legacy. And that made the book just feel so much more important. So I think, you know, what I'm hearing, and I, I wasn't expecting this and didn't know it was happening, but my friends are saying, wow, this this got really personal and I didn't know that was happening. But I think that was the other motivation that in the end, you know, yes, I can leave behind a college education for her. Maybe I can leave behind some sort of uh, house or some financial help. But the, really what I want to leave behind is, hey, Emmeline, look, there's four characters living inside you and you need to pay really close attention to which one's bubbling to the surface because that's going to dictate everything else that comes comes forward in life, including the quality of your relationships, the depth of the love that you have, your ability to keep a job, your ability to sustain friendships, all of it stems from the person that you identify with inside yourself. So I have to say, I love looking at your Instagram. It's so cute, <laughs> all the pictures you post of your, your daughter and yeah. your wife. If you want to know more about, about business, there's other accounts. But if you want to see <laughs> my dogs and my wife and my daughter, then that's the Instagram account is it. So what you said was just really powerful. We all have four personalities that live inside of us. And it's our choice to decide which one we want to give the most energy to. So it's the victim, the villain, the hero, and the guide. Could you really take us deep on these. Break it down. What are each of the characteristics of each of each of these personality types? Well, you know, again, there there are four and and I and my my 
thesis in the book is the reason that these screenwriters and these storytellers keep choosing these four characters to write about is not because there are victims in the world and there are villains in the world and there are heroes in the world and there are guides in the world. It's literally because they're all inside of us all. In stories, they're not. In stories, they're separated into different characters. But that's not the way it works in life. They're in us. And so when we hear that that voice that says, look, I'm doomed. I'm not going to be able to make it out. Woe is me. My life always, this terrible stuff like this always happens. That's the victim. And the victim in a story plays a bit part. The victim in a story exists to make the hero look good because the hero rescues them and the villain look bad because the villain tortures them. That's the only purpose of the, of the victim. They do not transform. They do not get a reward at the end of the story. They do not, nothing happens to them except that they play off the hero and the villain. And if we do identify too strongly with the victim inside of us, that is exactly what happens to you. I mean, the story of your life literally plays out that way. You don't transform. You don't get what you want. You don't become a better version of yourself. You don't get rewarded. You don't get respected. People basically feel sorry for you. And that gives you some resources, you know, some change that's thrown at you. But that's it. And some people get hooked on that change and just think, they think that's the only way that they can survive. It also helps us make, it serves us in some way. Victim mentality is a coping mechanism. And sometimes, let me just say, it's actually an effective coping mechanism. You know, I, um, and, and it's helpful for a couple of days. It's not purely evil. It's not purely bad. You know, I finished the book. Emmeline was born. It was in a really good space. And before the book came out, about two weeks before the book came out, I had to make an extremely difficult family decision. And the family decision was to let go of my chocolate lab, Lucy. The average age lifespan of a chocolate lab is 10 to 12 years. She's 14 and a half. And she had a big tumor, a lot of arthritis, but she was cognizant, you know. And, and the doctor was saying, look, you know, anything past today and you're just making her suffer so that you don't have to feel guilty. And, you know, I thought about it. I thought, okay, we got to do this. You know, I let her go. We, we let her, you know, it was a beautiful time, a family time together and let her go, put her in the car. Holla, the next day, I'm in a fetal position in my bed weeping. I mean, this is, you know, she's my best friend. And my wife calls her my first wife. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'm I'm saying to myself, I'm releasing a book in two weeks defending the idea that life has meaning. And it's all a lie. It's just a complete <laughs> lie. There is no meaning because we can't keep our dogs. And uh, and uh, a couple days later, of course, I'm saying, well, you know, it is it, how beautiful is it that she was with me that long and she got to meet the, my daughter and she got to move into this house a year and a half ago that's called Goose Hill. It's literally named after her, Lucy Goose. And, um, and she taught me about friendship. She taught me about devotion. She taught me about... She got me to Betsy. She taught me to be responsible in relationships. You know, it took a couple of days for me to, to convert and to transform from a victim mentality, which is okay. It's okay. But we, we can't stay there. We, we become victims temporarily in life so that we can turn around and metabolize the pain and turn it into strength and optimism and hope and skill, by the way, and empathy. Beautiful things come from pain. And... Um, you know, that, that's the benefit of, of having understood what I wrote about in the book is you can sort of be self-aware and gently and with great grace guide yourself toward a more optimistic uh, identity. So, the, but that's the victim and the danger of being a victim. The villain 
is very similar. The victim experiences pain, so does the villain. The villain, though, rises up in strength rather than stays the victim. But they rise up in strength not to help others, but to seek vengeance on a world that's hurt them. So the and the hero also experiences pain. The hero experiences pain and rises up and says, I'm going to become strong so that nobody else has to experience the pain I did. I'm going to defend them and defend the world against these injustices where the villain says, I'm going to get people. I'm going to get back at people. And the general rule about a villain in a story is that they make others small. And so when there's this, there's that spirit in us. I've got it in me. I don't know about you. But the, the spirit to gossip, the spirit to demean others, to, the spirit to think that others are lesser than you is a villainistic characteristic. And if we let that take too much ownership of our life, if we over-identify with that, what happens to a villain in a story? Well, they are killed. They are killed or they are thrown in jail. They're taken care of. And, you know, I have friends now who are mistreating their employees, who are doing, you know, they're just stressed and overworked is the truth. But the way they're responding to that, their teams are mounting against them. And I, I'm saying, look, it's very predictable. <laughs> this all, all of this is extremely predictable. What you need to do is say, I've been very stressed. I've been extremely rude and I've diminished you and I want to apologize. And if you'll give me a chance to start over, uh, let's keep working. And that immediately transforms you out of the villain and back into the hero. So the idea is if we can get ourselves to just function more as a hero than anything else, the story is going to go well. Now, what does a hero do? A hero rises up against what they are challenged with and transforms into a better version of themselves so that they can overcome the challenge. Heroes are not people who are capable of over overcoming challenge. They're not. They're people who are capable of changing into the person who, who can overcome the challenge. So to, to stay in a heroic mindset doesn't mean I'm awesome, I'm great. It means I can become the kind of person who can deal with this. And you know from starting a company, if you did not have the skill sets to start a company and run a successful company when you started, you had to beat yourself, uh, beat your head against the wall many times until you became the person. And it's by accepting these challenges that we transform. And then once we do transform and we become very competent, what we find is that winning only for ourselves is really empty. It leaves us kind of feeling lonely. And so we want to turn around and help others. And, and, and indeed, Holly, your entire company, that's what you do. And so that characteristic is called the guide. And the guide is Gandalf and Mary Poppins and on and on and on in these stories. Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid, you know, these characters that show up to help the hero win the day. And so as we get older and more experienced, certainly as we become parents, the guide characteristics come alive in us. And, and I argue in the book that that is actually the most fulfilling role to play. You can't play the guide until you've been the hero for some time, but slowly the guide begins to manifest itself. And that's indeed where we find a deep sense of meaning in our lives. Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. What's up, Yap Bam? Being an entrepreneur and working remotely definitely has its perks. And I know a lot of you listening in are in the same boat as me. But do you really take advantage of being able to work from anywhere? I know I typically don't, but thankfully this past holiday, I finally decided to make use of my work flexibility for the first time ever. My boyfriend and I decided to pack up and leave to the West Coast to spend an entire month working from home in the sun. 
We got a super cute bungalow in Venice Beach with a fenced backyard. The change in scenery, the fresh air, and the slower pace to help me to inspire some really cool new ideas for my business. And honestly, I'm feeling really refreshed and ready to rock in 2024. And who helped me make these remote work dreams come true? It was Airbnb. And Airbnb has come in clutch for me time and time again. Whether it's finding the perfect Airbnb home for our three-day annual executive team get-together or booking a vacation where my extended family can fit all in one place, Airbnb always makes it a great experience. And you know me, I'm always thinking of my latest business venture and I've been begging my boyfriend to start hosting our place on Airbnb. And finally, we're gonna start. So many of my successful friends host on Airbnb and it's such an amazing way to generate passive income. So to start, we have a plan to start spending more time in Miami and we'll be hosting our place to earn some extra money when we're back on the East Coast. 2024 goals and I'll keep you updated. A lot of people don't realize that they might have an Airbnb right under their own noses. I was pretty surprised myself. You can Airbnb your place or spare room even if you're out of town for just a few days or weeks. You could do what I did and work remotely somewhere else and Airbnb your place to fund your trip. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host to find out how much your home is worth. Young and profiters, it's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. With inspiration at our fingertips and powerful tools at our disposal, the possibilities are endless. And when it comes to tools that can truly make your business grow, there's one name that always stands out, Shopify. <laughs> Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the real store with the door stage and even the did we just hit a million orders stage. And if you're in that I need to sell more with less stage, Shopify magic is your AI superpowered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts from blog posts to product descriptions. Not to mention Shopify also is the home of the best converting checkouts in the game, 36% better than other leading commerce platforms. Shopify turns browsers into buyers. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And you can sell whatever, whenever with Shopify. Push pleated pants with Shopify's in-person POS system or monetize mindful meditation. I sell my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass through Shopify and they've made my life a breeze. It took a couple days to set up my store and I just get to focus on what I do best, creating great content and marketing my product. So don't stress if you're new to this commerce thing. Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. And remember, whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting and that's all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash profiting to start growing your business today. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. Wow. So like a couple things are really standing out based on what you just said. The first is that the way that we acknowledge pain and interact with pain determines whether we're the villain or the hero. Yeah. How we, how we react to it and how we respond to it determines our path. Yeah, which is just super interesting. And then the other thing that really stood out is the fact that in order to be a guide, you need to be a hero first. And once you're kind of confident and successful, the next step is to then give back to others and, and be a guide and help others 
you know, become right. heroes gonna, and transform. That's going to make us more fulfilled. Now, to be sure, you can be a guide at two years old. I mean, you know, if you have a, a younger sibling and you help them figure out how to use a sippy cup, you are acting as the guide. So we all act like guides from the from the beginning. But as we get older, we become much more effective as a guide. I, I went and interviewed Pete Carroll, who is the coach of the Seattle Seahawks many years ago. And I asked him, when did you first realize that you wanted to be a coach? And he said, you know, I had the luxury of winning as an athlete really early in life. And I, I, I call it a luxury, he said, because it helped me discover that it actually wasn't very fulfilling. But when I turned around and helped other people win, I, it was very meaningful to me. It was an enjoyable, pleasurable life experience. And so that led me into a career of coaching. Well, what he said there was, I enjoyed playing the hero. It was really nice. But when I started helping other people win and help other heroes win, I felt a deep calling in my life. And it's true that, that the objectives that we determine for our lives, if they are mutually beneficial, that is, if they benefit others and they benefit ourselves, they align much more closely with a deep experience of meaning. Mm. So I want to talk about uh, the hero a little bit more because it turns out that every inspirational story basically has the same plot. And a lot of people think of heroes as these like big, strong people that always, you know, do great. But really, you say that it's a victim who's transforming and that's really all a hero is. So talk to us more about that. What is the typical inspirational story that we all know? Well, yeah. So when I say when I say play the hero, most people go, I'm not a hero. You know, I'm not strong. I'm not this. I'm like, well, pause your favorite movie and ask yourself if the hero likes being in this particular situation. I don't care where you pause it in the movie. Pause the movie and ask yourself, is the hero enjoying this? And the answer is no, <laughs> they're not. They're clinging to the side of a building. Their girlfriend just left them. They uh, are having to give a speech and they're not ready. It doesn't matter. They're, the whole movie, they are in a place they don't want to be, having to do a thing they don't want to have to do, engaging a challenge that they don't feel like they're, they're, they measure up to. That's the whole movie. And they're ill-equipped. They're afraid. They don't want to do it. They're in desperate need of help. That's a hero. And so if that feels like you, then, well, congratulations. You're in the right place. And that story is transforming you. So what we see is in the last nine minutes or so of the film, if we're talking about film, in the last nine minutes, the hero has, in fact, transformed and is a much better version of themselves. We tend to think of heroes and define them by the last nine minutes instead of the previous 90. So the idea is if you want to be a hero on a mission, set an objective in your life that is difficult, that's going to require some commitment and some transformation on your part and step into it and try to make it happen. And that is what will transform you. So heroes and victims are very similar, except heroes uh, are not looking for a rescuer. They're getting up and trying to get, now they may, they may look for help, they may look for a guide, but they're not looking for somebody to take the responsibility away from them. That's what a, a victim is doing. So uh, something else that I thought was really interesting, you had an author's note in your book where you talked about the fact that you shouldn't leave your fate up to destiny. And you talk about a concept in your book, the external locus of control and the internal locus of control. Can you talk to us about the difference between the two and why that matters in terms of how we plan out and go about our lives? Yeah, well, you know, the author's note is very, very short. It says, I don't think we should trust fate uh, to write the story of our lives. Fate is a terrible writer. And it, it's, actually, it's actually very true. I don't think fate is either working for you or against you. I think it's entirely, it's like the weather. It's, it's neutral and it's completely based on chance. 
sometimes fate works for us. And we think, oh, you know, the stars are aligned. I personally don't believe that. And, I, and, and as somebody who believes in God, I don't believe God is either trying to make things happen for you or against you either. I think sometimes you might step in and do that. I don't know. I can't prove that. But I think what he's doing is saying, here are the basic principles to make something really happen with your life. And you get up and do it. That way you will have a sense of fulfillment about what you've done in life. And I, by the way, I'm going to cheer you on. And to me, that's the interaction I have with God. And it's, and I know we're all over the place theologically as people listen to this thing. But uh, at the same time, I think the, the point is if you are trusting an external source to guide the story of your life and make it work out, I personally do not think it's going to work out very well. I, I think what the external source wants you to do is be empowered and stand up and take responsibility for your life. And I think uh, narrative structure in the universe itself probably rewards that. And it's so much more fulfilling, right? It's just it's so much more fulfilling to do so. So psychologists have this term called internal locus of control versus external locus of control. And if you believe that my life is terrible because my parents and because the year I was born and because uh, the way I look and because uh, then what you're saying is my life, the quality of my life is determined by outside sources, things out of my control. Psychologists have a have a term for that. It's called an external locus of control, that my locus of control is actually external. Now, those who identify with an external locus of control, have higher rates of depression, worse relationships, less earning power, higher rates of anxiety and frustration in life. Now, if you say, well, no, my life is miserable right now because of the decisions that I've made, and I willingly did some stuff I shouldn't do, and I mismanaged some money, and I wasted my time, and even though you're it sounds like you're saying, you know, my life is terrible. That person who says, well, it's terrible, but it's also pretty much my fault, has much less rates of depression, better relationships, higher earning power, less anxiety. They do better in life because they actually believe they are in control of their lives and they can learn from their mistakes and they can move on. So the good thing about external internal locus of control is you're not one or the other person. Uh, you're actually fluid. In other words, if you have an external locus of control, it can change to an internal locus of control. So heroes in stories have high internal locus of controls. Victims in stories have high external locus of control. So once again, whether we have an external or internal locus of control, whether we think of ourselves as a victim or a hero, determines the quality of the story that we will end up living. Oh my gosh, I love that. So let's say that somebody listening is, you know, there's a lot of people in their mid-20s that are listening in right now that might feel like, man, I, I feel like I was like Donald when he was in his mid-20s. And I feel like I approach life with an external locus of control and I'm a victim and I approach life as a victim. What prevents them from transforming? Like what are the big things that prevent people from taking that step to become the hero of their own lives? Well, before I even say that, I want to say that judging yourself, shaming yourself, being upset because you just realized you've had a victim mentality is entirely and completely unhelpful. Uh, when, we, when we say to ourselves, you're such a little victim and you've wasted the last 10 years and, you know, if you weren't such a victim, people would like you. Freeze that voice for a second. Listen to it. Who is that talking? You know who that is talking? 
It's the villain. So now you're in a, in a worthless conversation between the villain inside you and the victim inside you, two roles that will completely ruin your life. So we've got to ignore those voices and we can't give them the microphone. What we have to do is say, have some grace. You have seen yourself as the victim because, and I'll tell you why, even if you had a wonderful, healthy childhood and there's no trauma, you see yourself as the victim because your parents did so much for you because they are loving and good. And now you are out on your own. You've been out on your own for a minute. And life is, in fact, very hard. And you are learning. And it takes a while to get your sea legs under you. And rather than face the challenges sometimes, you've given into a bit of a victim mentality as a coping mechanism to just to deal with the pain. And I would say, well, that's completely understandable. And not only is it completely understandable, it's kind of funny. It's kind of charming, right? And that's the sort of attitude that we want to have. And now we want to say, however, Mr. Miller, if you want to be a writer, we're going to have to get up in the morning and we're going to have to work from 7 to 9 a.m. on the manuscript every day with some discipline. And we're going to have to accept this heroic journey and transform. And uh, that is the attitude that a hero has. And so what, what would my advice be? One is don't kick yourself around for being a victim. It's wasted energy. The second is a hero has an objective. So we need to define what it is that you want. Do you want to be a writer? Do you want to start a company? Do you want to be an influencer? Do you want to get married? And do you want to start a family? Do you want, you know, what do we want? And we need to write those things down. And I recommend in the book writing them down from a very interesting perspective, and that is the perspective of the end of your life. So I, and, and I give the assignment in the book to write your eulogy, to actually write your eulogy as though people were reading it after you died and talk about the things that you have accomplished. And what that does is it, it opens a story loop in our brains. Will you get these things done? Every morning, including today, about, well, about four to five mornings a week, I read my eulogy. It's how I start my morning. And my eulogy talks about the fact that Donald Miller has lived three significant stories. One is he started a company called Business Made Simple, which became basically a college at a major university for entrepreneurs. So I have a meeting with the president of a major university here in a couple of weeks to pitch all these frameworks to be housed inside their university. Well, why do I have that meeting? I have that meeting because every morning I get up and I read that story. So every day I'm putting something on the plot if this president says, Dom, we're not going to do this, I'm going to get a meeting with another university. But this college is going to exist. So that gives... Oh, wow. You manifested the actual college thing specifically. 100%. Yeah, wow. I wrote it down. Yeah, I wrote it. I didn't manifest it. I decided I pointed there and I went there, right? And I, mean, I don't know about manifesting. There's nothing magical about, you know, saying I'm going to eat an Oreo cookie and then you eat it. You know, that's just, that's just what you do. But it did... You know, it gave me that. The, the second is that is my family story. My, my wife and I and our daughter, Emmeline, live on 15 acres in Nashville, Tennessee. We have an event space. We're building a guest house. It's a beautiful sort of mini retreat center. And the vision several years ago that I wrote in my eulogy was that we would live in a house that serves the world, that, that thinkers come here, writers come here, entrepreneurs come here. You can't pay. It's all free. And a couple of weeks from now, Evan McMullen is coming. He's running for Senate in Utah. He's going to speak to a group of influencers here. A former representative from the Red Campaign is coming to meet with country music singers and the, the, the governor's office to talk about criminal justice reform. All of that was just a, an idea. 
but what it was was a story that my wife and my six-month-old daughter could live into. And what I was trying to do was say, okay, we're going we're gonna to start a family. What would be the coolest place you could possibly grow up in to realize that you can change the world? And we dreamed up this house and an event space in the backyard and a guest house where writers come. Right now, a couple writers are upstairs. One of them wrote a book about the lead up to the Iraq war. We had a great dinner last night, talk about it with some people. It's just a place where wonderful conversation happens. Well, you say, Don, that sounds so special and so magical. It was just an idea, right? And then you start doing things toward it. Another one is uh, something called Build the Middle Class that will exist by the end of the year. And basically, it's a petition that people can sign. It says, we are asking Republicans and Democrats to come together and pass eight pieces of legislation on tax reform, education reform, immigration reform, and so on and so on. Immigration reform launched yesterday. And then that's it. I, I don't have any time. I've got 30 years left in my life, and then I'm dead, and I will never come back to this planet. So I have 30 years left, and if somebody comes and says, Dom, we'd love for you to do a TV show, I look at my eulogy, and I say, there's no TV show on here. I'm sorry, I can't do it. I've got three stories and I'm going to live these three and I don't have time to switch gears right now. So that's the, the thing that if you're in your 20s, it's not too late. In fact, you're in the perfect time to say, well, look, you know, what three stories do I want to live? And the great thing about being in your 20s is you can actually live one of them, file it away and start another one. You've got so much time left. But a hero is always inside of a story. And one of the most dangerous things you can do is live your life and not know what story you're inside of. Because if you don't know what story you're inside of, one of two things is happening. One is somebody else is dictating the elements of your story, probably a corporation, right? Or a government or a spouse or somebody else. You're a pawn in their story but you don't have a story or you just don't have a story. And so you're a character walking around on a movie set and nobody's given you a script and nobody's given you a part to play. And you literally feel just as uncomfortable in your own skin as you would as that character with no part in the story. And yet he's walking around on set. And that's a restless feeling that a lot of people identify with. Totally. I mean, I think this is such an interesting concept. I had Matt Higgins on the show. He was on Shark Tank. He's a big TV personality, big VC investor. And he also swears by writing a eulogy and then he reads it every day as well. I had Robert Greene on the show, huge successful author. He talks about the law of death denial. And it's very similar that if you avoid the thought of death, you lack urgency, you lack motivation. And this sounds very similar. So why does writing a eulogy work? Like, why do you think that that actually helps you get closer to your goals? Processing your own death does a few really wonderful things for you. And what I mean by processing means realizing that you're not here forever and that your story is, in fact, very, very short. One, as you mentioned, it creates a sense of urgency. I don't have time to sit around. I don't have time to take that frivolous meeting. I don't have time to, you know, whatever. I don't have time because uh, I, I only have a certain number of days left. You know, I, I got married at 42. We had a baby when I was 49. I'm now 50. She's six months old. You know, I just told my team yesterday, I'm not doing any more keynotes and I'm not getting on any more airplanes. And what, I'm, what I want to do is I've got 30 years left. I intend to live 35. I intend to live till I'm 85 years old. That means that my daughter 
Hala, will be 35 years old when I die, if I make it to 85. I may not, I may make it to 70, so she's going to be 20, which is too young. Any, if you had a daughter at 25, you know, she would be 55. She would be 60 when you die. So I'm determined in the 30 to 35 years I've got left to get as many hours with her as my friends who had children when they were 25, which means I can't get on airplanes. Now, if I didn't fully process the fact that I'm going to die, I would never make that decision. I'd always be like, well, I got this weekend with Emmeline. I can get on this airplane and go do this interview and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I can go do this keynote and we can make some money because I've got forever with my daughter. It's a lot. You don't have forever. And one of the things that my daughter will never, ever say about me, she may say a lot of things, like he has terrible dad jokes and his fashion is horrible. But what she won't say, she won't say is he didn't spend time with me. She will not say that. And I get to control that because I get to spend time with her. And so, you know, that's the sort of thing you get when you process your own death. The other thing is, you know, not only a sense of urgency, a sense of focus, right? These are the three stories I've got left. I've got time for nothing else. And everything else is a no. And that's 90% of the stuff that comes my way is a no. Because when time is being taken away from you, you get really, really focused right away. So the, the, the processing and thinking about our own death is the, I think, is just the basis of wisdom. And if you, do, if you say, Don, that's morbid. I don't think we should think about our own death. That's sad. I want to be really clear what you're saying. I, 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 you have the right to say that. Certainly you do. What you're actually saying is, I don't want to think about the truth. Just let that sit. I don't want to think about the truth. I want to live in denial. And, you know, death denial, as you mentioned earlier, is, is uh, something that does not, in fact, serve your life. 100%. So let's give my listeners something actionable to do. If, if we ask them to write their eulogy, how much time should they take? How long should it be? What are the elements of a really well-written eulogy? Well, you know, in my book, the purpose of the eulogy is actually to give you something that I call narrative traction. And narrative traction is when you get interested in your own story. And you know, when you get interested in a story, you get hooked on a story and you're like, oh man, I just lost a weekend. I've got to sit here and keep clicking next, right? You want that to be your life. So you want to wake up in the morning and just like on Netflix, when you see that little, the, the next button slowly lighting up. You want your day to feel like that. I wonder what we can put on the plot today. You know, I, I'm excited to put my feet into my own shoes and go get something done because we're building something really cool and something really meaningful, and I'm actually enjoying it. You're looking for narrative traction. So the eulogy assignment that I give in the book is not an actual eulogy assignment. It's not, it's not exactly what you want people to read uh, when you die or want people to say. I mean, certainly it is. But what it is is something you can read every morning to remind you what your story is about. Therefore, in my opinion, it should be short. And why should it be short? It should be short because if you have a seven-page eulogy, you will not read it every morning <laughs> because it takes too long. So mine is about four paragraphs. It takes me about 120 seconds to read it. And I actually and you read created, it every single morning. It's part of your morning routine. I, I, I spent $200,000 on a piece of software that keeps track of whether or not I'm reading my eulogy. That's how important this is to me. I, it's in a piece of software. If you go to mydailyplanner.com, yesterday, I've been doing this for years. Yesterday, we made it available to the public. 
So you go, go to mydailyplanner.com. You can write your eulogy, your 10-year, 5-year, 1-year vision, your goal worksheets, and a daily planner page. It all comes it all comes together as a morning ritual that takes about 15 minutes. And um, right now, it came out yesterday. Right now, we have 85 people using it. <laughs> so, so it's me and 85 people who are doing this. But that's fine with me. I did it because uh, I think it's a life changer. And so it also... Very, very soon, within the next few weeks, the developers are adding a streak button so it will keep tabs of how many days you've read your eulogy, period, and then how many days in a row you've read your eulogy so that you are, you know, that's gamified so that you would want to keep your streak going. And it's a super, super effective tool. But yeah, I've probably read it, you know, it's got to be thousands of times now. And, and also, I'll also edit it because the software just lets you change it. I was going to say, I can imagine you read that and you'd be like, you know what? I'm going to tweak this little part because 100%. this is evolving. And but Yeah, because the point is narrative traction. The point is I always want to tweak it a little bit so that I, I stay interested in it. Uh, you know, we, we experience a deep sense of meaning when we're in motion, not when we've arrived. So the whole point is to keep me in motion, keep me in motion, keep me heading towards something that's really beautiful. We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. I want to talk to all you employers out there and let's talk about company culture. At Yap Media, we have a super unique company culture. We are all obsessed with excellence and we even call ourselves this really cute name, Scrappy Hustlers. We're all Scrappy Hustlers at Yap Media. And my team is growing fast and hiring is a pain in the butt, especially if you're looking for A players that are going to roll up their sleeves. But luckily, when it comes to hiring, I no longer feel overwhelmed by the search for the perfect candidate because I use Indeed, the ultimate hiring platform. Indeed's matching engine always presents me with a pool of high-quality candidates that match my job description to a T. If you're tired of drowning in your hiring pool, Indeed is here to rescue you. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging your candidates, making the entire hiring process a breeze. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. I've hired some of my best employees at Indeed, some of my best scrappy hustlers. With over 140 million qualifications and preferences analyzed every day, Indeed is constantly learning from your hiring preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets at actually hiring your perfect match. Join the ranks of more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that have already chosen Indeed to hire great talent. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash profiting. Just go to Indeed.com slash profiting right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash profiting. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Young and profiters, I've got a fun fact for you. Did you know that by 2030, over 85% of the jobs that will exist haven't even been invented yet? And that's why we need to acquire new skills and stay relevant and adaptable. By embracing lifelong learning, we can future-proof our careers and our businesses. That's why you've got to check out Economist Education. Economist Education provides online executive education courses tailor-made for professionals just like us, crafted by The Economist's own editors and special experts. Economist Education courses are designed to sharpen your professional skills in key areas like data storytelling, critical thinking, sustainability, and so much more. I highly recommend checking out the Economist Education course, Business Writing and Storytelling. 
It's packed with valuable practical advice on how to inform and persuade through writing reports, social media, presentations, and beyond. The best part, these courses are online, flexible, and self-paced, lasting anywhere from two to six weeks. You're guided by expert tutors. You'll dive into a mix of videos, podcasts, texts, quizzes, and weekly assignments. Plus, you'll get a three-month digital subscription to The Economist to support your learning journey. Economist Education provides access to online forums where you can network with peers around the globe. In a world where knowledge is power, Economist Education empowers you to lead the way. Economist Education is an incredible way to stay ahead in business. And I've got a special offer to get you started. Get 15% off any course only available by going to my special URL, education.economist.com profiting, and then enter the promo code profiting at registration. This offer ends on March 31st, so don't wait. For 15% off, go now to education.economist.com slash profiting and use code profiting. Again, this ends on March 31st. If you want 15% off, you've got to go to education.economist.com slash profiting and use promo code profiting at registration. Young and profiters, I actually have a nasty habit of ordering way too many groceries. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I've wasted so much food in the past and I felt really guilty about it, but now my conscience is clear with HelloFresh. Each week, I get ingredients shipped to me with step-by-step recipes. I get fresh, pre-measured ingredients that get me whipping up delicious dinners in no time. And then I reduce waste because you get exactly what you need and nothing else. I love trying new foods and HelloFresh has over 45 recipes and more than 100 seasonal add-ons to choose from every single week. It's so much fun to pick out my meals. It's easier than ever to find something that everybody in your family will enjoy. I personally like to stick with the basics when it comes to HelloFresh. I get their meat and veggies plan. I love the options they have for that. And trust me, it's cheaper than takeout and with pre-proportioned ingredients, you'll never waste money on excess food. And now Green Chef is owned by HelloFresh which gives me an even wider variety of meals to choose from. There's something for everyone. I love switching between the brands and you can enjoy both brands at a discount with me now. Skip the grocery store and save time with easy, tasty recipes delivered to your door. Go to hellofresh.com slash profitingfree and use code profitingfree for free breakfast for life. That's one breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at hellofresh.com slash profitingfree with code profitingfree. So to me, it sounds like your eulogy is basically all your huge life goals. It is your mission statement. And then you need to plan, right? Because a goal without a plan is just a wish and a dream. So talk to us about how you go about planning and, and taking action on all the things you have in your eulogy. Yeah, so the book takes you through the 10-year, five-year, one-year plan. By the way, if you want it on paper, it's free. Just go to hereonamission.com. You don't even have to buy the book. Just download the pages and it's all there. So everything that you need is right there. And so you, you, there's a 10-year vision, a five-year vision, and a one-year vision. And they're exactly the same worksheet. They're just obviously the one-year vision is a lot closer than the 10-year. And so, you know, they tell me what I've got to get done by the end of the year. There's two books that I need to finish by the end of this year. I know that because I read my one-year vision this morning. And then in the next five years, there's uh, certain things that need to happen in the next 10 years. In 10 years, I'm 60 years old. And at that point, the Build the Middle Class platform has 30 million signatures. There are 250,000 representatives flying our, our flags all over the country. And the middle of America, the common sense I'm willing to work with the other side to get things done, has a voice in this country. And so I know 
I got to get this done within 10 years. So that means there's a lot of work to do, right? And we've got to build some advocacy around this. So, you know, if I didn't read that stuff every morning, I think within a week, I'd forget the plot because I would, I would stop reading it. And then my buddy Drew would say, hey, Dom, we're going on this golf weekend with all these people. And then I'd go on the golf weekend and, the, you know, there'd be some optometrist who says, look, I've got this vision for you know, starting 25,000 optometry centers around the world. We've got $7 billion. Will you come on as the CMO? I'll give you $3 million a year to do it. And now I'm suddenly building optometry centers. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, what happened to build the middle class? Well, you didn't read your freaking five-year vision. And you said yes to a great opportunity. And, you know, if you're in your 20s, you're listening, yeah, but I don't get those opportunities. Listen to me. You're about eight years from getting those opportunities, right? The, the older people die off and you take over, and those are the opportunities that are going to be handed to you. And if you're not grounded before you get them, you're going to take some opportunities that you don't need to take. And that's why you want to be grounded in the story that you are deciding to live. Internal locus of control. You direct your story, not opportunities and all that kind of stuff. You direct your story so that you decide which opportunities you take and which opportunities you reject. Love that. I think all this material is excellent. We're going to link it in our show notes. So last time you came on the show, I always ask this question at the end of my show, what is your secret to profiting in life? And you mentioned Viktor Frankl, which after reading your book, I learned he was your favorite philosopher and he really changed your life. And I think his story really helps tie all of this together. So tell us in more detail about Viktor Frankl and his story and how he transformed from victim to hero. And then we can kind of take a look at his framework too. Well, Viktor Frankl was a psychologist in Vienna in the 1920s and 30s. And he developed a theory alongside, theoretically at least, Alfred Adler. Certainly there was some Jungian instincts in there. Sigmund Freud was alive at the time. Something was going on in the water in Vienna because those guys, a lot of smart folks came out of there. And he basically said, man's dominant desire is a desire for a deep sense of meaning, which feels like purpose in their life. And he developed a, something called logotherapy, a therapy of meaning in which he prescribed a certain way of living to people, which gave them a deep sense of meaning and helped them overcome depression, anxiety, and a bunch of other stuff. And he applied it inside the Viennese hospital system specifically for suicidal high school patients. They had a serious suicide problem around the time grades were released. He, when he applied logotherapy, when he basically taught them to live as heroes on a mission, suicide rate dropped to zero. And he was writing a book on his theories when World War II broke out and the Nazis began to collect Jews and put them in concentration camps. Uh, being a Jewish man, Viktor Frankl was taken with his wife who was pregnant. His wife, Tilly, was pregnant with their first child. She was murdered. Uh, his parents were murdered. The manuscript in which the, the thesis uh, was confiscated and taken from him. And he spent years, I believe, in four different concentration camps and survived. And after he survived, instead of being despondent, certainly he was in incredible pain, but he rose out of that victim mentality and began delivering lectures around the world on how life, in fact, does have meaning and is, in fact, beautiful. And, of course, who's going to argue with him, right? 
I mean, I'm sorry, your sugar cravings don't measure up to what this guy has been through. Yeah, if, if he's, he's not saying, a victim, then nobody has right, the excuse. Right. And so he was incredibly uh, influential on this book and influential on me, you know, personally. I'd say he saved my life and maybe saved the quality of my life. But just a wonderful, wonderful person who has proven that life, in fact, has been. What's really interesting about Viktor Frankl is he didn't actually tell us what the meaning of life was. He told us how to feel it. And he doesn't answer the question, what is the meaning of life? Or why does life have meaning? He just says, here's how you experience it. And so what it does is it makes the the stuff I talk about in the book, and th that's what the book is. It's a prescription for logotherapy. And uh, it makes the the work theologically agnostic, philosophically agnostic. You know, I was, I was meeting with a friend having coffee, an acquaintance, I should say, back in Portland many, many years ago. And they were, they, it was very obvious they were a nihilist. And they said to me at one point, well, you know, life is meaningless. And um, that could be the state motto of Portland, Oregon, right? I mean, it's, it's just uh, it's, it's that kind of place. And I, I said something a bit offensive to them. I wrote about it in the book. But I said, what if life is not meaningless? What if just your life is meaningless? And of course, they didn't think that was very funny. But what I meant by that was, what if the stuff that you were doing inside of your story is giving you a bad experience? And what if it's not life itself. In other words, you know, what if you're writing a book and what you're actually saying is this book is not interesting. And the good news is if we can get ourselves to believe it and understand it is that the book can change. If you know how to live a certain way, the book can get really, really interesting really fast. And I'm a living testament to that because I really like my life. It's not always easy. It's not, you know, I cried myself to sleep when I had to put my dog down. There are painful, painful elements to it. There are hard things. Today, we took Emmeline to get her last shots at the doctor and hold your crying baby while she doesn't understand while she, why somebody's poking her with a needle. They're just tough scenes in life. And of course, I'm being very, very light. And the people listening have some very, very painful scenes. And yet we can choose to do things with our life that give our life a deep charge of meaning and beauty and go to sleep every night being grateful for the incredible experience that we're having. Yeah, the thing that keeps coming to my mind was this concept of personal agency as you're talking about the fact that it's not that life is going to be perfect. There's going to be ups and downs, but it's how do you treat those ups and downs? How do you have perspective towards them? Can you talk to us about personal agency and what that is? Yeah, personal agency is, is, is similar to a lo internal locus of control. It's belief that you have the power. And the one thing that you, you have the power over that nobody can take away from you is your perspective on life, including your perspective on very, very difficult things. And so when painful things happen to us, we can either have a victim perspective, which is, woe is me, I'm doomed, please send a rescuer. Or we can actually say to ourselves, wait, this is painful. And also, it somehow benefits me. It's both. And that's the prescription that Viktor Frankl would give to his patients. He would say, when something very painful happens, acknowledge it. Don't be a delusional optimist. Acknowledge it. Grieve it. And also realize it comes with benefits. And when the most, in other words, redeem our pain. I met a young man who his son he came home from church. His wife had stayed back at the church, came home from church, and his three-year-old son, they, they went to take a nap, and the three-year-old son woke up, went into the garage, 
got into got back into the car, closed the door, and died of heat exhaustion. And he came to me and he said, Don, I, I want to write a book about this. I need to process it. And he ended up writing a book, and now he travels the country, and he helps people understand how to grieve the loss of a child. He did something with it. Now, does that bring back his son? No. But what, but it, what it does is it redeems the pain and uses it for good, and that has given his life a deep sense of meaning. So any of us can do this. And, and what's the alternative? You know, the alternative is buy a truckload of whiskey, get a divorce, and drink yourself to death. I mean, well, you know, that's the victim life. And we're not going to do that. We're going to redeem our pain. Well, Donald, I feel like the work that you're doing is incredibly important. And I'm so happy that you wrote this book and you shared your story and your perspective on how to have a meaningful life. I think it's really important. So as we close out the interview, I have a new couple of questions that I ask my guests on every show in 2022. What is the one actionable thing that our listeners can do today to be more profiting tomorrow? Okay. I love this. And your listeners are going to hear this several times throughout the year. On the daily planner that I give away, uh, there's one question. There's a bunch of questions, but one of the questions is the answer to your question. And that is, just answer the question, what am I grateful for? What am I grateful for? One thing that victims and villains do not have in common, or, or do have in common, forgive me, is they're ungrateful. If you ever find yourself playing the villain or playing the victim, stop and ask yourself, what am I grateful for? And you will immediately exit victim and villain mentality because you will never, ever hear a villain in a story say, you know, I'm so grateful for my friends. <laughs> they will never say it. And no victim will sit there in a dungeon and go, I'm so grateful that there's a shaft of light that I can study the sun. While I'm they don't do it because that would transform them into a hero. And so if you want to go from victim to villain to hero real quick, just ask yourself what you are, are grateful for. So that's the, the one thing that I would say leave with. I love that. And that reminded me of something that I didn't get to ask you. Why is the question, who am I becoming, a really important question to ask? Because it does two things. It defines a direction for your life, for your personal life, for your character. And we all need a direction. We all need someplace that we're going. Otherwise, we wander around and we walk in circles. Right. And it also reminds you that you are not a fixed static creature. You are somebody who changes. And so, yes, you may struggle with that right now, but a year from now, you probably won't because you are somebody who changes. And it's very, very dangerous to think of ourselves as a as bad at math. You're not bad at math. You're somebody who hasn't applied yourself to learn math. But you're not bad at math. It's not your identity. You know, so we want to we want to have a growth mindset, as Carol Dweck would say. Hmm. Okay. And the last question that I ask on my show is, what is your secret to profiting in life? Well, uh, my secret has always been, and I didn't know it early, but I do now. My secret has been delusional optimism. I just believe ridiculous things are possible. Ridiculous things. And, uh, you know, I say delusional in quotations because it's not, but other people would see it as delusional optimism. You know, your friends are not going to understand or not believe in you until strangers see you do it and say, no, that is who he is. And then your friends will go, oh, I guess that is who he is. 
It's so true. The people who are closest around you are the ones who cannot see your growth because they're just seeing it too closely. And it's all this. It's so true. That's why that's why strangers and those are the, your main supporters in this journey. Yeah. Yeah. Your friends take a minute. Yeah. Okay. So where can everybody go get this new incredible book, Hero on a Mission? Uh, Amazon. There's a, there's a website called Amazon.com. And if you go there... You hit the buy now button and it shows up at your door. And I would, I would love to, uh, I would love for folks to read it. Awesome. We're going to stick all those links in the show notes so you guys have easy access to all his free resources, his book on Amazon. Donald, it is always a pleasure. You're always welcome back to the show whenever you have something new to talk about. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. It's always a yes when you invite me on because it's an honor. Thanks so much. Thank you. I am so happy that Donald came back on the show. I love it when we talk to each other. He's just such a brilliant man. And I'm so happy he was able to share more of his wisdom and life experiences with us. He's got such an inspiring story. And it was a wake-up call, I think, for everyone tuning in to step out of their victim mindset. In his mid-20s, Donald said that he had an attitude of doom. He was overweight. He was completely controlled by his moods and emotions. And he did not realize that he was actually choosing this victim identity. And when he began to see himself as a hero, everything in his life changed. He said this changed when he began writing better stories for himself, ones that he now enjoys living inside of. Donald quickly realized that there was a lot of people out there who don't realize that they're identifying with the wrong character of their story. And in his new book, Hero on a Mission, Donald uses his own experiences to help us recognize if the character we're currently identifying with is helping us experience a life of meaning or completely the opposite. He breaks down the transformational yet practical plan that took him from being a mediocre writer to the great businessman that he is today because he gained a new perspective on his own life and his own life's meaning. And that ignited his motivation, his passion, his productivity. And you can do the same. Donald and I talked about the four types of characters in every story. And the reason why storytellers always choose these four characters to write about is because these four characters characters are inside of us all. We can all choose to be these characters and we're probably these different characters depending on our environment and our situation. It's our decision to decide which character we want to exude or emulate in that moment. Donald said that the victim mindset is a coping mechanism. It's a way to stay complacent with our lives. If you think about it, a person who surrenders their life to fate is the essence of a victim. By surrendering your story to fate, you allow fate to decide whether you succeed in a career or set an example. Victims believe they are helpless and they flail until they're rescued. Actual victims do exist and they do, in fact, need to be rescued. Victimhood, however, is a temporary state. Once you're rescued, the better story is that we return to the heroic energy that moves our story forward. Beautiful things come from pain and victimhood. You can become self-aware with great grace once you can overcome that victim mindset. The villain, on the other hand, makes others small. They try to get back at people and they think that other people are lesser than them. What separates a villain from a hero is that heroes learn from their pain and they try to help others avoid that same pain. The villain, on the other hand, seeks vengeance against the world that hurts them. If we're honest, we all surface villain energy from time to time, sometimes depending on whether or not we've skipped lunch, for example. The victim is like the villain because they experience pain, but the villain rises up in strength. They rise up in strength not to help others, but to seek vengeance upon the world. 
The hero rises up in strength and vows to defend people so they never have to experience that pain. If the hero responds with a purposeful action and a sense of hope, our story will move forward and become interesting. But if they respond with a sense of hopelessness like a victim or they lash out at others like a villain, the story will break down. A hero wants something in life and is willing to accept challenges in order to transform into the person capable of getting what they want. Living like a hero is actually nothing like you might think. They're not strong and capable and perfect. They're actually simply victims who are going through a process of transformation. Donald reminded us that heroes can't make it on their own because they don't know how. The hero needs a guide. When you watch a story, it's not about the guide. It's actually about the hero transforming. But the guide is the strongest, most capable character in the story. They're also the most caring and compassionate. Becoming a guide then is really the the ultimate destination. That is the most meaningful transformation that can happen in your life. We may root for the hero, we may hate the villain, but our utmost respect is reserved for the guide. Positioning your brand as a guide is also the secret to business success. We talked about that in episode number 120 with Donald, where we focused on storytelling for business. When it comes to marketing your brand, you are not the hero of your brand story. Your customer is. So you may be thinking, if I'm not the hero, what role do I play in my business? You're the guide. You're the person with the right kind of heart and the right kind of experience and knowledge to help your heroic customers overcome their problems, transform, and win the day. Remember, heroes are always transforming and you are the one helping your customers transform on their journey. In order to be a guide, you need to be a hero first. You need to have transformed yourself before helping others do the same. Remember, we all have these four characters inside of us and we likely take on different roles based on our various environments and the situations we're put in. Evaluate where you are right now and then act accordingly. If you're in the victim mindset, move to become the hero. If you're the hero, move to become the guide. I want to end with Donald's advice of reimagining your life story by writing down your own eulogy. He says that writing your eulogy opens a story loop in your brain and it's like willing yourself to live life a certain way, which leads you to be more intentional about what you do every day. Donald said that this eulogy practice has helped him know what his life story is about so he can actually get that story done. Processing your own death sounds morbid, but really it helps you realize that you won't be here forever and it creates a sense of urgency. We've talked about this a lot on our podcast and a lot of successful people practice this. It also creates a sense of focus. Donald reads his eulogy every single morning and he reminds us to keep it short, consistent, and to be the author of our own lives. Thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode of Young and Profiting Podcast featuring Donald Miller. If you want to learn more about Donald and his business, go to storybrand.com. You can also check out Business Made Simple. I was on that podcast a few times and it's an amazing podcast. And make sure you go check out his new book, Hero on a Mission. If you guys want the links to any of these items, go check out our show notes. Be sure to connect with me on social media. You can find me on Instagram at Yap with Hala or LinkedIn. Just search for my name. It's Hala Taha. Big thanks to the Yap team as always. This is Hala signing off.